Coming up this hour, we're going to talk with Lance Hurley, the executive director of Ignite Church Planting. This is The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, who is normally here. He's here in spirit today because he's out gallivanting with his family, but he'll be back mid-next week. And in his absence, we have a whole slew of really wonderful guests. Before we dive into that, though, real briefly, you can learn more about the show on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post our articles. You can send us a message if you have questions or ideas. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash the common good and wherever it is you get your podcast, whether that's Apple or Spotify. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating and reviewing helps us out a whole ton. And we're super grateful for all of you who have done that. And I am thrilled to have for the entire hour, the executive director of Ignite Church Planting and my friend and all around good dude, Lance Hurley. Welcome to the show, sir. Well, Ian, thank you so much for letting me be here with you today. Uh, My pleasure, man. I think we're going to have a good time. I have no doubt that we're going to have some fun today. And and uh, just to start, would you take a minute or two and just tell your story, give a, a brief introduction to yourself? I'll be happy to, my friend. Um, I've been up here in Chicagoland for 39 years now. Wow. Uh, graduated from uh, college at Lincoln in 1981, came to a new church plant in Mantino, Illinois, and I served as the, uh, the senior pastor there for 19 years before I uh, took a role with... Uh, with Ignite, which used to be called the, the CDEA, Chicago District Evangelistic Association. And uh, I've now been uh, working with that organization. I just started my 21st year in uh, in June. And uh, and God, is, uh, we have had a lot of fun. We've started over <laughs> 40 churches uh, in and around Chicagoland in the last uh, 20, uh, 20 years. And uh, we've got more ahead. But uh, it's been, it has been a blast to, uh, to do this, uh, this kingdom work here. So. Well, if you've ever been in, in the room with Lance Hurley, you would suspect that he has jet fuel for breakfast. This guy has more energy than almost anyone I know. And also a fun fact, both of the churches uh, that I have worked at in adulthood have been a part of the CDA and Ignite in some way, shape or form, which is pretty fascinating. I, I'm curious, Lance, what what does church planting look like now in the midst of a completely unheard of reality in the midst of a pandemic and quarantine. What's the state of church planning right now? Yeah, well, it is, it is definitely in a unique spot right now, Ian, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I am glad to be honest that we didn't have any planters in the pipeline for this fall to do a, a typical, I mean, I've used that in quotation marks, a typical church plant, because I don't know for sure how it would have worked. Right. Uh, we, right. we have made some transitions just uh, started in April to, uh, doing online training for church planters. And uh, mm-hmm. I can talk more about that later in the segment if you'd like to. Um, but we've been doing some online video training for them uh, with the hopes of uh, launching a series of, uh, of micro churches designed for different people groups. So um, wow. right right now, we're I think we're all, and by we all, I'm talking about different church planting directors across the country. We're trying to figure out uh, what the next thing looks like and how it's going to be working. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that's a perfect segue, by the way. I'd love to know more about that that online training that you're providing. Okay, well, we are. Uh, I said we started this in in uh, in April. I have a cohort, a beta cohort of, of eight people going through mm. this, and the idea being that uh, we're spending the first six months uh, just talking about spiritual formation because uh, I really think that uh, you've got to you've got to be a disciple before you can be a disciple maker. So we're, mm-hmm. we're really diving into the uh, to the disciple making into things. 
And, um, and so as we do that, each of these components have, uh, have different videos attached to them. We, we started with uh, the Bible, then we went to prayer, then we went mm. to serving. And this, this month, uh, the guys are looking at videos on uh, sharing Jesus. Wow. And uh, two more components to go at the, end of, at the end of every month. And they do it at their own pace through the month. They look at the videos. They, they uh, do some of the homework involved with it. And then I meet together via Zoom to, uh, to talk through what they're learning and to talk about some next steps for them. And uh, the idea phenomenal. being that they take what they learn and they, uh, they begin to share it with, uh, with at least three other people to begin that disciple-making process. So. I love that. I, I realized, too, I'm, I may have leapfrogged over this a little bit because like church planting is so a part of our church's culture and DNA. How, how would you define church planting for someone who's maybe never heard the phrase before? Well, church planting would be, it would be starting starting a new body of believers uh, that's going to reach a specific neighborhood, a specific mm. region, or a specific people group. Hmm. That's and a really so good. That's a really good summary. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I can be succinct every now and then, right? So. <laughs> that's remarkable. I, I'd be curious to know you've been involved in church planning specifically for so long. How have you seen it change over the decades? Oh wow. Um, really? Okay. So when I when I first came up as a church plan back in 1981, uh, the way that uh, the way it was done, at least for the CBEA, they had a they had a specific church plan. They called him church plan evangelist. He would go into an area and gather a group of people, hmm. and uh, and after about a year, then they would uh, they would uh, bring in a new planter to work with the group and uh, and move them forward to the next uh, level. And that's hmm. where I came as a church planter. And so I like I said, I was uh, 22 years old. Um, and, uh, I, I laughed. I, in fact, I, I spoke at the church that I pastored for 19 years for their 40th anniversary, uh, just this past Sunday. Wow. And, uh, and I told them, I said, there's, there's three things that I said, uh, I asked Bob Slaughter, I said, why in the world would you tr- trust a 22 year old? And, uh, and he said, well, there's three reasons. He said, one, you came from a, you came from a ministry family. So you understood the church. Said two, you're highly recommended from the school you uh, you uh, went to as a potential leader, hmm. and then he said with a twinkle in his eye, he said, "There were 20 people. How bad could you hurt it?" <laughs> and, and I said, "That's the re- that's the reality right there." Okay, uh-huh. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, it was fun. So that's the way it used to be, and then we began to get into some of the new methodologies of. Uh, you know, phone calling, which is how Community Christian Church started. We did a bunch of phone. In fact, I did phone calls for uh, for them. No kidding. Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. The phone's for you. Back in 1988, and we did that. Wow. And then we went to direct mail, and then and now we're using a variety of, of like a combination of things as we go into uh, start new works. And when we start with a bigger bigger start, so right, right. And and do you? I, I don't know how much you are comparing and contrasting to what people are doing in other countries. But like, if you had to, if you had to guess, or, may, or maybe you've experienced it firsthand, what are some of the, like the major distinctions to planting in the United States versus other parts in the world? Uh, the, the other parts of the world are doing much more, I think with, uh, with the disciple making modeling. And to be mm. honest, they're, mm. they're doing more of the, uh, more of the, uh, the smaller uh, missional or micro churches that, uh, that just spawn. And they just continue spawning, and uh, where in America we have a little more fascination with uh, with the large, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, but I think we're learning more as we go along that there is a uh, 
there is a need to get back to uh, to the small that could be more uh, reproduc reproducible and uh, and multiplicative. So, see, and I find that so interesting because I'm at now a large context, and I was previously at a much smaller context, and now having existed in both for a number of years and seeing, you know, honestly, strengths and weaknesses. Uh -huh. In both categories, I, I think I think you're spot on. And some of what we're even seeing now with how we're having to rethink strategies and structures in the midst of a new reality, things that maybe we never would have pulled the ripcord on. But now we're like, well, we don't really have any other options, you know, like this. We, we got to do something. And uh, I'm going to ask you, we'll wait to the next segment. I want to ask you a little bit more about why you think the rest of the world tends to be a little more inclined towards some of the discipleship and what some of the stumbling blocks here are in the United States for us to actually do the, do that well, because I think I think your answers would be fascinating. So that's what's going to come right up next with Lance Hurley, Executive Director of Ignite Church Planting, here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. Don't worry. He's just on vacation with his family, and he'll be back next Wednesday. But in his absence, we have a whole smattering of really wonderful special guests. Before we continue our conversation with Lance Hurley, a couple of quick things. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, Instagram and Twitter, if you believe it or not, at Common Good Talk and wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you wouldn't mind, if you're a podcasting type listening on a podcast right now, subscribing, rating and reviewing helps us out a whole ton. And Lance not only is a friend, but he's also the executive director of Ignite Church Planting. If you want to learn more, and I highly recommend that you do, IgniteChurchPlanting.com. That's IgniteChurchPlanting.com. And at the end of the last segment, we were talking a little bit about some of the tensions between how we plant churches in the United States versus how people tend to do it all across the globe. And Lance, one of the things you said, which is always fascinating to me, is one, sort of our attraction to the big here in the West but two, also some of our, our struggle to like really do holistic discipleship well. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit more about that? I, I sure can. I uh, if, if I can start with the with the big first of all, I, yeah. I did a devotional at a uh, at a church planners retreat a couple of years ago in um, in uh, Colorado, and I uh, told them about my early morning walks. I said, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I walked through my subdivision in the early morning, and I said, you know what I see everywhere around our subdivision? I said, I see rabbits everywhere. Hmm. Just and then I, and then I, went on and I said, you know what I've never seen in my subdivision, though? And I said, I've yet to see an elephant. <laughs> I, I see rabbits everywhere, but I've not seen one elephant. And I said, I think at times we become enamored by the elephant when it comes hmm. to church planting, and we forget that rabbits multiply more rapidly and, uh, and will increase. And here's what I've been told, and I, I think it's been proven to be true, that two rabbits will outproduce two elephants in weight of offspring over a two-year period. Wow. Wow, that's interesting. About 18 months to have a baby, I think. so. Um, right. right. So I, I just there's, – there's something to be said across the world. We're seeing the movements take place that are uh, really rabid, uh, like rabbits, because hmm. they are multiplying everywhere. And, and – Anybody can be a, a, a leader or a, a church planter as long as they can gather people and, and show them what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Hmm. That's fascinating. And, and here, in, uh, here in the United States, sometimes we, uh, we say it has to be a, an ordained um, Bible college uh, professor, or not professor, but, uh, but a graduate to, uh, to right. do those types of things. 
And uh, so what we're trying to do, uh, it's a non-traditional planter training I mentioned earlier. We're trying to raise up people who are, who just want to, to share Jesus, who want to show that they are a follower of Jesus and begin to gather other people to help them see what it means to follow Jesus. That's brilliant. And, Which, so and what, how does that, how does that in your mind pertain to discipleship particularly? Well, and I, I think part of it, it goes to that, that formation stuff that I was talking about, uh, talking about just those six, those six aspects of, of, uh, of discipleship, we were trying to train them, you know, to appreciate the Bible and 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 apply the Bible to their life, to to know what it means to talk to God in prayer and to see the mm-hmm. power and efficacy of prayer, to uh, to be a servant of Jesus and to mm-hmm. be able to share Jesus, and then mm-hmm. to to be a steward, you know, to to know what it means to be owned by Jesus. Uh, and that we don't only we, that Jesus owns us and we follow it's a lordship issue. And then last but not least, but to remain, mm. you know, to be a constant remainer uh, in in the vine. So those are the those are the things we're trying to teach as far as discipleship goes. And I think if a person can model those things, he can he can begin to uh, to transfer those those traits and that uh, that type of uh, habitual lifestyle to people. That's phenomenal. I, I read a post from Dan White Jr. a couple of weeks ago, and he said, uh, in a consumer culture, a pastor is a dynamic communicator, a powerful visionary, a leadership guru, a political commentator, a podcast creator, a marriage counselor, a social activist, a parenting expert, and a bedside chaplain. No wonder wow. they burn out. <laughs> I and I thought, yeah, that that'll preach. That feels like that certainly that certainly has been my experience. There's a lot of that, maybe not all of them, but certainly the expectation to be most of those. And it sounds like what you're saying is in these micro expressions, those expectations aren't aren't necessarily quite the same. Why, why do you think in the West we're we're so, to use your language, obsessed with the elephant? I don't know. I, I wish I could. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're looking for answers, I just don't have a whole lot of answers. Uh, but I, I, you know, part of it is, I mean, uh, American, we're we're con- we're consumed by the big. I mean, you know, uh, I don't know, and we like instant things too. So, um, mm. you know, instant potatoes. I mean, they're but they do taste pretty good. <laughs> I like them myself, but uh, you know, it it's uh, it, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes energy to to grow something, and sometimes it's uh, it's just easier just to do what's quickest. I don't say that's mm. bad. Um, yeah, I, I wish I had a good answer for that. Uh, I, I think part of it is uh, it, it's what uh, what can be platformed at times, mm. and it, and it seems like way if it's bigger, it's more successful, which isn't always right. the case. Right. Uh, if if it's reproducing, it's healthy. Mm. I go back to something Bob Logan used to say all the time: healthy churches reproduce. Hmm. And uh, and I really like that because uh, that's that's what we need to be after. We need to be after disciples that reproduce more disciples that reproduce. Right. Which I feel like sometimes gets so lost in the noise because you know I, I grew up in a little church outside Detroit, and again I wasn't like privy to the leadership conversations. One because I was young, and two because I was a punk. But I I don't ever really remember us talking about church planting or reproduction or any of that. Really, until I came here, I remember somebody talking to me about a church in the area being a really big church planting church. And I thought, oh, that's so sweet. They have a garden. They're planting. Oh, <laughs> that's so. And they're like, no, that's not. I mean, I was studying youth ministry, learning what this phrase even was. And I, I think that's such an important metric because like I remember even when I started in Naperville, uh, a pastor in the area wanted to meet with me. 
and he'd been faithfully pastoring about 200 people, you know, in town. And about a half hour into the conversation with tears in his eyes, he said, tell me what I'm doing wrong. Why, why am I failing? And he so saw that, well, because his church was quote unquote, only X number of people, he just assumed that he had failed at ministry. It like broke my heart because he had, he had bought this metric and they had planted churches and they were reproduced. Like they were a healthy church, but because the number hadn't reached what he thought it should reach. He really felt like he was a failure. What, what, what would you say to the person who's maybe, who's maybe stuck in that right now, who's, who's assuming numbers equals health? Yeah, I'd say uh, you need to change the scorecard. I mean, that's, a, that's an, uh, an exponential mm-hmm. thing uh, from mm-hmm. the, the conference, but you really need to change the scorecard because what matters is, uh, is health and reproduction and, and whether, or not, uh, whether or not people are finding Jesus and then sharing that with others. Who are also finding Jesus, right? And just keep that that train going. So yeah, it's we, we gotta we gotta change the way we think. And just uh, it's not about it's not about getting bigger numbers. It's about gaining more people into the kingdom and uh, mm. growing the kingdom. And, and granted, we can do that in we can do that in a larger context. There's no doubt about it. I mean, some of our sure. church plans have been very large, and some have not been. And of course, the problem is is when you begin to compare. And, uh, and it's not a matter of comparing, it's a matter of, of being who you are and being faithful mm. to who you are and then growing what God has given you and, and in the context God has given you. So That's a good word, man. I love that. So joining us for two more segments this hour is Lance Hurley. He's the executive director of Ignite Church Planting. You can learn more at ignitechurchplanting.com. And he's going to be sticking around for two more segments here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, usually joined by the right Reverend Brian Fromm. He is out on vacation with his family. He is not responding to my text, so I'm assuming he's having a wonderful time disconnecting. But he'll be back next Wednesday, and uh, we're super, super grateful that he gets some time away just to be with his family. But we are joined all hour by Executive Director of Ignite Church Planting, the one, the only, Lance Hurley. And we've been talking about pastoring and churches and church planting. But one of the questions that you would sort of raise before we even went live here, Lance, was uh, this this issue of prayer, this topic of prayer, the significance of prayer. And what I would love to ask is, what what difference is prayer making in your ministry specifically? Oh, thanks, but I appreciate you asking that question because uh, prayer is foundational for what we're doing. It is one of our core values. It's one we practice um, hmm. every, every year. We start off the year with 30 days of prayer. We do it on a we do a prayer call and uh, we pray every morning together, just for the the year ahead. Now we had no idea what was coming in 2020. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> or just in January, but, uh, but uh, hey, God's been faithful. I mean, He really has, and we've seen some we've seen some good things. We've seen some doors open up for us for us this year. Um, mm-hmm. we, we pray every Wednesday on prayer calls. So, so we prayed this morning, and uh, and one of the things we prayed for we prayed for the city of Chicago. Mm. With uh, with all the the things taking place with the shootings and, and so forth, it's been it just broken my heart. Mm. And uh, one of our church planters, um, he grew up in the Austin neighborhood of the city, and so I asked mm. him today just to share share some uh, some realities of what it was like growing up in Austin, and uh, and what it's like now because he's uh, you know he's in his thirties now, and so what it's like now because he has people come to his church from from Austin also. And um, 
there was a shooting yesterday at a funeral. Yeah, and, right. Uh, Dwayne, Dwayne sent me a, Dwayne sent me a, a video clip of that. It just broke my heart. Yeah. And uh, and I and I just said I, I told everybody on the prayer call today. I said, hey, here's here's where God begins to change our hearts as mm. we pray. Mm. And I said, I have no answers for what's going on there. Right. But I know we have to, we have to pray for our city, and yeah. we we have to lift up the, these different situations, these people. So so Dwayne provided some great context for our prayers. And uh, and I, I the prayers we're doing we're praying now will lead to action, and mm-hmm. I don't even know what the action is going to be, and but I know it will lead to action. I think I think that's what I've learned about prayer through the years uh, with Ignite. It is foundational for us, but it's it's prayers that pave the way for uh, for action to take place. Hmm. So why do you think? Because I think what you're saying there's probably. One camp that's cheering right now, and they're saying, "Yes, absolutely, I'm that way." Go to God first in prayer, and there probably are other people that are like, "Yeah, I know that it's important, but I actually very rarely make it a priority or 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 give it the the significance in my life that it should." Like, what what do you think are some of the reasons that people struggle to do exactly what you're saying when we're faced with tragedies, or or not even tragedies, when we're faced with uncertainties? To mm-hmm. go to God in prayer, whether you're in leadership or even just in your own marriage or family, like why, why do you think, what are some struggles that people might have to actually do that? Well, that's a great question. Um, uh, some people have told me, well, I'm, I'm a person of action. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take action. I'll pray. Right. I'll pray. I go on. I'm going to take action. I think I said, yeah, yeah. I said, my, my go-to move. And that's what I tell them. I said, well, I'm, I'm a person of action too, but my go-to move is to, is to go to the knees first. Hmm. personally hmm. i said that's that's my go-to move that's 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 the best thing i know to do because of the power that comes from it um and maybe maybe people don't because they uh they they haven't seen the uh, the tangible results from praying hmm. um and i and Ian, that's beautifully i love praying for the 30 days because we can see tangible answers to prayer i i remember a time we were praying for the asian people group in uh, in chicagoland uh, prayed, but prayed for the Asian people group in, in the morning, prayed for church planters. That afternoon, I received a, an email from a former dorm dad man in college. He told me about a, an Asian church planter, a Korean Korean gentleman up in uh, Lake County. He said, he needs some help. Could you help him? I said, absolutely. We prayed for him huh. this morning. Wow. Wow. I mean, so, I mean, that was right away. And, and I could tell you all kinds of stories just like that. Hmm. Uh, so, I and see, for me, that's why it, it's, I know this has to be the first thing we do. Personally, as an or, as a organization, if we don't pray, we're not going to have the power we need. Right, right. See, and, I remember reading. I need, so, I, I read a quote from Martin Luther years ago that's always kind of rattled me, and he said something like, "I have so much to do today that I need to spend the first three hours in prayer." Yeah. And I remember the first time I read that, thinking, "That's so counterintuitive to how I typically live my life." Typically, it's. I have so much to do today. Uh, God will understand if prayer misses a day. You know what I mean? Like I have to, I got to get after it. I'm kind of like you. I'm like an obsessive doer. I'm a, I'm a, I like to activate. I like to go after it, you know? And he understood something. I, I think along the lines of what you're saying, like, man, my, my day or my week is so packed. If I don't first anchor myself in the power to actually do these things well and to God's glory in a way that ushers in the kingdom, 
then yeah. then what are we doing? You know, and like you get that as a church planner. I'm sure you understood that as as a pastor. Do you, do you find that? Is that something that was easier or harder for you when you were pastoring a local church? Oh, much harder. <laughs> yeah, really? I'll be honest. Really? Why is I'm that? I'm too busy. I was way, way busier with uh, with a lot more um, people stuff and uh, program stuff and things of that nature. It's different. And my role now is different than when I was pastoring in, in the local church. So do you, do you find that that's true for a lot of local church pastors? Do you think that they would... A lot of them would put busyness as a as a top three stressor in their life. Probably so. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I think so. And why do you why do you think that is? Well, it's it's the nature of the beast at times. You know, it's uh, it's the constant demand uh, people. I mean, uh, we love we love people, but uh, they carry a lot of a lot of uh, challenges at times, and mm-hmm. uh, and those challenges come on us uh, unexpectedly. Um. And then they get uh, they get in the way of, of things we plan at times, you know, as far as our schedules, you know. Right. And right. I was always amazed how Jesus was able to walk so gracefully with the constant demands on him and the uh, and the people who constantly interrupted him. But he always he put people first. Right. Right. He seems like unhurried almost like there. I read a, a huh? book by, I forget his name. It's a, it's a Japanese theologian and it's called the three mile an hour God. And his sort of assessment is that the speed of Jesus was probably about three miles an hour. And the problem is a lot of us move at a much faster speed. And he kind of talks about the stuff that we miss when we're always running from thing to thing, or like right now, you know, going from zoom meeting to zoom meeting without any margin or any gap. He's like, there, there's a lot of like life and ministry and beauty that we miss by right. assuming that that pace all the time. And so you're, you're saying that it's a bit different as a church planner or in your role as executive director. How, how are, how has it changed and how is it, how is it similar? Uh, well, I don't have the constant, uh, constant Sunday demands coming on right. all the time. Right. And, uh, and that is, uh, that is a big challenge. You know, when you're preparing sermons every, uh, every week and, uh, this is why one reason I tell our, our church planners that you really plan on doing 40, 40 weeks of a year. And mm. uh, and don't don't set yourself up to be the only communicator. Um, yep. You need you need time off once a month or so, and, uh, yep. and uh, that would help. So I don't have those demands on me. I don't have the, the people. And I, I I work with our planters, with our church planters, and oh, nice. uh, it's it, it's a different. It's kind of a different uh, level. I mean, and our church planters still have challenges too, and so I try to be there for them. And uh, but it, it's just different than uh, than uh, you know two hundred people. Right, right. Trying to get your attention. Yeah, I'm sure. Man, that's so good. All right, well, coming up next, one more segment with the executive director of Ignite Church Planting, Lance Hurley. We're going to ask him a little bit more about the state of the church and what he's excited about looking forward. And that's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and Brian Fromm is normally on the other side of this digital microphone, but he's out vacationing with his family. He'll be back next week. But in his absence, we have a whole smorgasbord of wonderful guest hosts who are taking an hour at a time, and I'm so excited, really, for all of these guests. But Lance Hurley is not only the executive director of Ignite Church Planting, he's an all-around good dude. He's the first person I've ever seen Use a turkey call in a sermon. Maybe we'll get that here in the sermon or in the segment somewhere. Rides a motorcycle. Just an all-around great dude. And uh, just to say it out loud, Lance, before I forget, man, I'm super grateful for you 
and your friendship and your leadership. You inspire me. And I think that you just have a great heart and an incredible skill set and Chicagoland in particular, but church planting overall is, is lucky to have you, man. You're, you're a good dude. Yeah. Well, thank uh, you, Rosemary. Super uh, my pleasure. I, I'd love to, I'd love to talk to you about this idea of micro churches. I feel like you, when I started at Poplar Creek might've been one of the first guys I heard talk about it. What, what, what is going on with this uh, micro church movement? Part of this is uh, is a and Dave Ferguson's mentioned this too, and in, in some of the, the teachings he's done, and I I really like what he had to say on these uh, these this issue also. But it's hmm. it's planting churches to reach different people groups and turning people loose to uh, to reach people groups that they are already affiliated with. And uh, I'll be honest, I I have one myself. I uh, I have a, a calling to uh, to I'm going to start ministry I'm, I'm already a police chaplain mm. but i want to start a, i want to start a ministry a church that will reach police officers and uh, and their families mm. provide a to provide a place that is safe a place where they can be themselves uh, my i have a i have a, a son who's a police officer police officers are they're they're different and the things they the challenges they face especially in our society they, the challenges are different and i think they need a safe place mm. and and I've talked with uh, I've talked with officer friends of mine, uh, and uh, they're open to this. And so I've begun to gather some uh, some guys together just to talk, and and begin the conversation. And I told the the first guy who said I'm I'm in. I said okay. And he said so. What are we gonna, What's the next thing we do? I said well we pray for the, the third person. So now we got a third person. I said and said what do we do then? And then we pray for the fourth person. Hmm. And once we get the, the four of us together, then we're gonna we're gonna start meeting and just see what God wants to do. Um, one of the one of the guys involved in our non-traditional planner training, he's a former police officer. No, he's former police chief, and he's mm. pulling together a ministry down central Illinois mm. that's going to reach this group of people. And uh, he knows, he recognizes the need for this. Mm. Um, one of the other one of the other uh, persons involved in this, he he feels a calling toward the homeless. He's out in Hollister, California. And uh, and he wants to reach out to the homeless population out there, and so he's going to start a, a church that's going to reach that group of people. I was uh, I was in a uh, I have a, my weightlifting partner. He's uh, he and his wife are involved in a thing called uh, Easy Street Theater, and uh, basically it works with uh, developmentally disabled adults. And uh, so he was working with them on on stage and and so far I went to the play they were involved in. And I looked and I saw all the actors up on stage. I saw all their family members and I saw other developmentally disabled people out in the audience. And like the Holy Spirit just stuck a, stuck a spear mm. in my heart. And he said, you need to start a church for this people group mm. here in Kankakee County. And, uh, and my buddy's interested in leaning in, but he'll probably be in the second, uh, the second cohort we put together of the non-traditional planet training. But he and his wife were interested in reaching out to this people group. Uh, with with uh, becoming a family of believers, I, and I, yeah, I think there are all kinds of people groups that we could reach as yeah. we just train people, mobilize them, and then deploy them, hmm. get them out of the Right. And uh, sometimes I think people just need permission to to lead. Right. Yeah, at community we call that having a, an I C and U conversation. You know, that's a yeah. pretty, it's a pretty significant part of our DNA that yes. leaders are consistently looking for what we would call apprentices to, to never be content with just 
well, I guess I'll just kind of lead my thing and hope for the best. Like, no, you should be looking for the next apprentice, the next person to pull aside and say, hey, you know, I see in you some real potential. I know that I'm here because of someone having a conversation with me when I was, I don't know, 16 or 17. If that conversation hadn't happened, I'm not quite sure where I would have ended up. And I think what you're talking about sounds phenomenal. And I remember Tony Evans years ago saying, we're making some strides, but Sundays from 11 to 12 are still the most segregated hour of the week. Yeah. You know, there, there's that's still that's still happening. Can you, can you speak a little bit more to the uh, the diversity that you hope to see in some of these like micro church expressions? Well, I think and that's where when you're uh, when you're gathered around uh, an idea or uh, or a favorite pastime uh, that that uh, cuts across different uh, different um, stratas of the of the population. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm a, I'm a motorcycle rider. I've seen African-American motorcycle riders. I've seen Hispanic motorcycle riders. And we share that in common. We wave at each other on the road. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what color you your, your hand goes down and you wave as you pass. Mm-hmm. Or you're part of a, a group of people that not everybody is. And I think that holds true in a lot of different, a lot of different uh, venues and, and genres. So is that, is that clear? I mean, uh, yeah. I think that's great. I, I was thinking of too when I first got my uh, my my first forty nine cc moped. I was riding around town and and, and, a, and a motorcyclist waved at me, and I felt like the coolest kid in school. I was like, man, <laughs> I've arrived. I'm in with my nineteen eighty nine Honda forty nine cc. It was not not my proudest moment. Um, all right, so Lance, we only got a couple of minutes left, but I I always try to end with some sort of like vision casting, like some sort of what's on the horizon. What are you hopeful about, you know, as a lot of people are navigating, you know, will or won't our churches reopen? Should I or shouldn't I send my kids to some form of school? Everything seems upside down or topsy-turvy or mur- murky at best. What's on the horizon for you? What are you hopeful for when it pertains to like the church, either locally or globally? And uh, I would love for you just to, to take us out painting a picture of hope a little bit. Well, I'll tell you, but I think uh, the the hope comes from knowing Jesus and the church. We that is our central our central key. We get to share the hope of Jesus with people, mm. and uh, and knowing Him it gives us hope here. It gives us hope beyond. Um, my my mother in law passed away uh, about uh, two weeks ago today, in fact. Oh wow! And she was a follower of Jesus, and uh, she had hope. And because of the hope she had, we have hope now. Mm. And, and I think in spite of everything we got. In, just read through it. I walked through the valley of shadow of death. I'll fear no evil for you were with me. Your rod and your staff that come for me. I just read that. Um, mm. And the reality of it is we're in a we're in a valley right now. Right. But we don't we don't live in the valley. We get through the valley. And that's the hope right. I think we have. And so that's what I keep pointing people through the valley because God's in control. Mm. You know, coronavirus, God God's in control. All the the racial unrest and, and inequality and injustice, God's in control. And uh, and we focus on him, and that's why we got we got to keep planting churches to bring the hope of Jesus to people, to communities, and to regions, hmm. so they see the reality of Jesus lived out. And that's my hope. I I see our churches living out the reality of Jesus in it. They get the they get to shine, and they get to share Jesus, and uh, and I'm seeing it happen. Hmm. And I think that gives me hope. Because as these guys share the hope, it, it becomes real to those who are, who are affected by it. And so I, I hope yeah, that gives you 
No, that's so good. And all of my training says that I should end on that inspirational note, but I, I have to ask you, is there any chance you remember what the actual illustration was when you were at Poplar Creek using that turkey call? I, well, I'm sure it was about evangelism, about different calls reaching out to different birds. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. Because, because if, it, if it doesn't respond to one, if the turkey doesn't on the white call, you pull another call out and you try a different one. So, yeah, I'm sure I would Man, I have such fond memories of that. Well, that is Lance Hurley, Executive Director of Ignite Church Planting. I cannot encourage you enough. Go to IgniteChurchPlanting.com. That's IgniteChurchPlanting.com. Brother, I love you, man. I'm so grateful for you taking the time. Thanks for being with us on the show today. Uh, my pleasure and honor. Thanks, Ian. Appreciate you, man. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here. And I remember the first time that I actually learned about Thriving Financial. I was pastoring a church in Bartlett and me and two other pastors had this dream, this idea to better care for the marriages in our communities. And so we started to dream up this conference idea. What if we actually hosted a local conference to pour into marriages and couples in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities and Thriving Financial kind of came alongside and not only like made the conference possible, but they were actually interested in partnering with us as churches, as pastors, to help people not only be wise with money, but to live more generously, which was always a value that I had and always struggled to find organizations that actually wanted to help our churches do that. And so that's actually kind of the beginning of what's been a really beautiful journey and relationship with Thrive and to actually be wise with money, to live generously, and to help other people do the same. And so if that interests you, I'd encourage you to go to Thrivent.com to learn more. Coming up this hour, Matt Sorens from World Relief will be with us for the entire hour. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm, but he is gone for the week. He's vacationing with his family. Don't worry, though. He'll be back mid next week. But a couple of things before we get rolling here. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We post all of our articles there. You can send us messages. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is, you get your podcasts. If you wouldn't mind all of those subscriptions and rates and reviews, that all does help us out a whole ton. And we're super grateful for those of you who have done that. And a guest that we've had on the show before, and we always get such incredible feedback every time he's on the show. Matt Sorens, who is not only the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief, he's also the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table. Welcome back to the show, sir. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Ian. Yeah, likewise, man. Can you can you just take a minute or two and share a little bit of your story and your background and how you got to where you're at today? Sure. Uh, I live in Aurora, Illinois, so I've um, been here for about five years and was have been in the Chicago area for probably 10 years before that, went to, came to this area to go to Wheaton College and uh, grew up originally in Wisconsin. I am married and my wife Diana and I have three uh, lovely and rambunctious children and expecting another <laughs> in September. Nice. Um, this morning, uh, my three-year-old had a rubber band stuck in her nose. So that's been, you know, the excitement of my day, um, <laughs> but we got it out. I'm sure it was all in very, you know, appropriate ways that don't spread diseases. Um, she struggled to get that out of her nose. Oh boy. <laughs> but, um, and the, for my job, I work at World Relief and have been there for 
almost 15 years now. Um, I just started with World Relief as an intern in Nicaragua, and for the last uh, period, I've been here in the Chicagoland area, um, where our mission at World Relief is to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Um, so we do that in various countries around the world, and then we do that in the U.S., primarily focused on coming alongside local churches to serve refugees and other immigrants. So my job focus is really on helping Christians in particular to think through issues of immigration, kind of the many issues we see in the news on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. from a distinctly Christian perspective. I love that. And I have all sorts of questions to that end. Uh, and I'm glad that you're sticking around for the entire hour because we're probably going to run out of time. But before I jump to all of that, though, you've written a couple of books. Can you talk to us a little bit about those books and what sort of the uh, general vision behind them was? Sure. Um, the first book I, I did with my colleague Jenny Yang is called Welcoming the Stranger. Um, it is really looking at how do we think about immigration and immigration policy from a Christian perspective. And we, we did a first version of that more than 10 years ago and then did an updated version just a, a year or two ago from University Press. And then back in 2016, I did another book with uh, two other colleagues, Stephen Bowman and Isam Smear, called mm. Seeking Refuge, that is uh, particularly looking at the, the refugee crisis, both globally and what refugee resettlement looks like in the United States. And again, from a, from a biblical perspective. That's so good. And I, I find, too, that the, this topic in particular of immigration tends to be one that regardless of the quote unquote side of the political aisle you fall on, like it makes everyone's blood boil a little bit for, for very different reasons. It's, a, it's the kind of topic that I love that you you speak with it with such clarity, but also from a uniquely Christian perspective. And I'm wondering, just sort of as a general 30,000 foot snapshot, um, where, where are we in, in the world of immigration right now? Just like catch us all up, because I feel like not enough people are talking about this. Um, what, how would you kind of summarize where we're at, particularly in the United States? Yeah, you know, it has been a, a a busy few years in terms of how immigration processes have changed in the U.S. I think that's the most uh, uh, unbiased way I can frame it. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously, it, some people are thrilled with what's happening. Some people are devastated by what's happening. But right. the net effect is there's just a lot fewer immigrants coming to the United States, uh, whether lawfully or unlawfully. Um, I saw a study that next year, the number of legal immigrants coming to the United States could be down by about 49 percent um and there's you know obviously some of that is covid related um but a lot of that was actually been a trend over the last few years as Mm -hmm. there's just been a number of uh efforts to to minimize the number of immigrants coming in the united states and for us at world relief what we are particularly concerned about is those who are most vulnerable so refugees who've fled persecution um people coming out of situations of of extreme poverty or who then sometimes find themselves uniquely vulnerable in the U S as well. So I, I know uh, probably from having you on the show now a couple of times, sort of where you land positionally on some of these things, but I, I'm curious for someone listening right now that uh, maybe would land more on the side of being thrilled that we're letting less and less immigrants into the country. What, what would maybe be some talking points, some starting points for a, a conversation with someone of that position? Yeah, well, you know, especially if they are a fellow believer, we're always yeah. trying to ground our conversation in the Bible, um, in, you know, what does the Bible say that ought to be informing how we think about this topic? And I'm always really clear, the Bible is not going to tell you how many refugees the United States should take this fiscal year. You know, that right. the Bible doesn't right. give us that sort of specific policy information, but it does give us an orientation toward immigrants. Immigrants are people made in the image of God who have inherent dignity and potential. 
just like the rest of us. They are neighbors whom we are called to love in chapter 10 and various other parts of the New Testament and, and the Old Testament, Leviticus 19. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, in the Old Testament, in that passage where, we're to- where the Israelites are told to love their neighbor as themselves, it's just a few verses later they're told to love the foreigner who resides among you as yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an Old Testament stream there that is speaks to the heart and character of God, of God's concern for those who are vulnerable, which in that context, as I would argue is still the case, often included immigrants of, of various uh, backgrounds. Hmm. And so I think that ought to be our starting point. Now that we also have biblical principles that would say we need to respect the law. Uh, Romans chapter 13 probably is the passage that most speaks to that directly. So we're not saying at all, you know, we just need to ignore laws or not have laws or let everyone in. We think it's appropriate for our country to have secure borders, to have a a well-regulated immigration process. Hmm. Um, But we also fundamentally think that immigrants are people who bring a lot to the church in the United States, to the nation as a whole, um, on an economic level, on a cultural level, but also on a a spiritual level. Hmm. And we think we're actually poorer as a country and and as a community when we don't have that. See, and I, I don't know that I've ever actually asked you this before, but what are people's typical responses? If, if you know, they're kind of uh, hostile to that position when, when asked, you know, because I know this is sort of your field of expertise. When you give an answer like that to someone that, you know, might be inclined to disagree, do, are people receptive to, to that logic or that line of reasoning? What, what's been your experience in like interpersonal dialogue about these topics? Yeah, I've probably had every experience across the board, so <laughs> it's hard to generalize. Um, you know, I speak in a lot of churches and that sort of thing, or, or used to when we had in-person church services. I guess hopefully that will resume at some point soon. Um, I, you know, I, I think the average Christian, I think, who isn't from a, near, a recent immigrant background, they often just have a lot of these categories confused. So people here are refugee, and most of the concerns, frankly, are about Muslims. Hmm. So on, on my response to that is on one hand, explaining why we think welcoming Muslims and showing them the love of Jesus is so important and an opportunity for the church, but also to correct the misconception that refugees are all Muslim. In fact, yeah. more refugees are Christians in the U.S. context than any other religious background. And it's wow. often their faith that has led them to be persecuted and flee as refugees. Uh, others, you know, I think they hear immigrant and they're immediately thinking someone who is unlawfully in the country. Hmm. So again, on that's just not an accurate stereotype. Most immigrants are lawfully in the country, but there are plenty who are not. You know, it's a minority, but still probably 10, 11 million people. Right. So to help think through, well, why did those people not come lawfully? Well, how do our immigration laws work? And how, as Christians, can we both affirm the importance of the law while also being compassionate and affirming the importance of families staying together whenever possible? And I find most people are actually pretty reasonable. Hmm if we help them think through some of the binary choices that they've been given sometimes by media. Right. Right. That's so good. That's kind of my hope for the rest of this hour actually is to help us think through, maybe even dismantle some of those obviously binary black or white, right or wrong discussions. Cause I think it's such an important conversation to have that a lot of people feel ill-equipped to actually have. And that other voice you're hearing is Matt Sorens. Not only is he the U S director of church mobilization and advocacy for world relief, but he's also the national coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table, and he's sticking around with us for the remainder of the hour here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by the right Reverend Brian Fromm, but he is on vacation with his family. Enjoying, I'm assuming he's enjoying. We haven't heard from him, but uh, he'll be back mid next week. But in his absence, we have a whole slew of really wonderful special guests taking an hour at a time. And before we continue our conversation with Matt Sorens, real briefly, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, and wherever it is you get your podcasts. Matt, you were talking just a bit ago about uh, some of the statistics, some of the raw figures regarding immigration and refugees. And uh, I, I learned recently a little bit about World Relief and this particular initiative called Closed Doors. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, so it was probably a week or two ago, we published this new report we called Closed Doors that really, and I should say we did this at World Relief with our partners at Open Doors USA, which is a, a really fantastic Christian ministry that's sort of a watchdog group for religious persecution, especially mm. of Christians worldwide. Mm. So we released this report to draw attention to the reality that when we talk about refugees, we're often talking about persecuted Christians. And mm. when we, as a nation, dramatically reduce the number of refugees able to access safety in the United States, um, that significantly impacts persecuted Christians, people who are persecuted for their faith in Christ. So um, that, that's really the goal of the report. And we've been really grateful for a lot of the attention it's gotten. It's been in a lot of media. Uh, but we think it's really important for people to realize that, that you know, if we care about the body of Christ around the world, First Corinthians 12 tells us that one, we're one body and when part, one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Right. We have to be concerned about the roughly 250 million Christians globally who live in countries where Christians face persecution. Mm. And we can't be indifferent when some of those people, even facing threats on their life, have made the tough decision to leave their country, end up as a refugee in a camp somewhere in a, you know, in a second country or, you know, struggling to survive. And the U.S. has historically taken a significant number of those people. And I mean, the, the sort of the headline of this report is compared to 2015, the U.S. this year is on track to take 90% fewer Christian refugees from the 50 countries on Open Doors' world watch list for countries where Christian wow. face persecution. Wow. So so you can learn the whole, you can read the whole thing at worldrelief.org slash closed doors. But I'm wondering, I mean, it's wonderful. It's not that long. It's about 12 or 13 pages. But what, what are some other things from that report that really jumped out at you or you felt like, man, people really need to know this about this particular topic. Yeah, you know, part of the report is just putting the numbers out there. And I mean, these are numbers from the State Department. They're not secret numbers. Um, but there's particular groups that have been particularly harmed by some of the changes to refugee policy. So um, we highlighted especially Iraqi Christians. Um, mm. Many people are aware of ISIS has been horrific for Christians in Iraq. Right. Also, Iranian Christians. Um, historically, large numbers of Christian refugees have come to the United States from Iran, from Iraq, also from Burma, or, or also known as Myanmar. Uh, that's act, Burma is actually the number one country of origin for refugees over the last decade or so to wow. the U.S. Wow. And seven, 70% of those refugees have been Christians. Actually, a lot of them are um, Baptists. Um, you know, in the Chicagoland area, we're aware of Judson University. All my mm -hmm. Burmese Christian friends celebrate Adoniram Judson Day every year because he's wow. the one who brought the gospel to Burma. That's right. And um, you know, they're the legacy of that. But unfortunately, the Burmese government, which is a very brutal government, is very repressive towards religious minorities. It's a primarily Buddhist country. 
and both Christians as well as Muslim, uh, the Rohingya, who you, you may have seen in news reports, have been just horrifically oppressed mm. in Burma. And the U.S. Yeah. Refugee Resettlement Program has historically been a, a safe haven for at least a significant number of those, more than 100,000 Burmese refugees in the last decade. But the wow. number of Burmese Christians able to come to the U.S. is down, again, more than 90% from 2015 to for 2020, at least based on the rate of resettlement so far this year. Wow. So you, you actually wrote an article in Christianity Today, I think it was back in the fall, about the uh, the U.S. refugee ceiling. And you were you were kind of really, if I recall correctly, bringing to attention, especially churches and church leaders, you know, to to really feel the gravity of what lowering the U.S. refugee ceiling actually does or what it means. Could, could you talk a little bit more about what you were getting after in that article? Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, some people have asked, well, is this all because of COVID that the numbers are down? And the reality is it's affected by COVID for sure. It's, COVID makes everything harder, certainly in terms right. of international travel. Right. But this is not really because of COVID. This was predictable based on the refugee ceiling that was set last October, actually it was set November 1st. Um, the president under the authority of the Refugee Act of 1980 gets to basically set the maximum number of refugees who can come into the United States in any given year. Hmm. And in 1980, that level was set above 200,000. Um, the historical average for the refugee ceiling is about 95,000. Wow. This year, it was set at a historic low of 18,000. Wow. So, I mean, we had more than 18,000 persecuted Christians from the countries on that Open Doors World Watch list in 2015. So by setting a total ceiling of 18,000, there was no way we were going to reach you know, the number of persecuted Christians to come in to say nothing, of course, of those persecuted for other faiths or mm. persecuted for their ethnicity or a political opinion. Um, by, by reducing the overall ceiling so low... And we're not anywhere near reaching 18,000, by the way. That's probably more a result of COVID. Hmm. Like we're at eight or 9,000, three quarters of the way through the federal fiscal year. So um, it's, you know, it's been a, it's a historically low year for refugee resettlement. In fact, a few years ago, even again, this is pre-COVID, Canada replaced the United States as the country that resettles the most refugees in the world. No kidding. Is obviously very generous of Canada, but they also have a population overall. That's about a 10th of what the U S has. Right. Right. So I'm, I'm wondering when you have these conversations, which I'm, I imagine you're having all the time, like what, what are some of the myths that you feel like you're often having to dispel when, when having conversations around this topic? Yeah. I mean, one is just when people hear refugees that people often don't realize those could be persecuted Christians and right. very often are. Um, I think another relates to, to terrorism. People have somehow gotten into their minds this association between refugee resettlement and terrorism, which is just not based on the data. Mm. Um, the Since that Refugee Act was signed into law in 1980, there's been more than 3 million refugees resettled to the United States, and not a single one of them has taken the life of an American citizen in a terrorist attack, wow. which is, uh, you know, I think a credit to our U.S. government, which has a really important function in vetting refugees. That is to say, making sure these people indeed qualify under the law, right. that they are not in any way a threat to the United States. And not to say every refugee resettled has been an angel, um, but mm -hmm. they have not been people who have taken American life in terrorist attacks. That's just mm. not, you know, that we don't, we're all for a secure vetting process, but I think the misconception is that we don't already have that. In fact, mm. in the closed door report, we quoted a report from the Heritage Foundation that you know, affirm that the refugee resettlement process is the most thorough process for any 
category of, of immigrant or visitor trying to come in the United States. It, it just would be a dumb terrorist to try to use that as their entry point because mm. it is the most thorough vetting that anyone undergoes to get into the United States. Wow. Well, what about people who, who cite uh, more economic reasons? Like I hear people constantly like well, they're, they're taking our jobs or it's, it's ruining our economy. Like, what do you, what do you say to some of those uh, hesitations from people? Yeah. Well, I would say, first of all, I understand those reservations, especially, I mean, I think I heard less of that six months ago when the economy was booming than I do now when mm-hmm. legitimately a lot of Americans are struggling. But right. I think the what people sometimes miss is, you know, refugees are a part of the solution to our economic problems and, and other immigrants as well. I mean, they are, they're adding to the consumption base in the United States at the same time they're adding to the worker base and the taxpayer base. And over time, uh, there was a study actually from some economists at Notre Dame. They found that the average refugee uh, adult 20 years after arrival has paid in $21,000 more in taxes at all levels than the combined cost of any sort of governmental expenditures on their behalf. So no there's some upfront costs, but the net fiscal effect, and I'd say the net economic effect as well, it's actually positive as the U.S. receives refugees and receives their contributions to the economy and, and to our society. Wow, that's fascinating. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Matt Sorens. He is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief and the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table. He's sticking around for two more segments in Brian's absence here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is sailing the ocean blue. Probably not, but he is on vacation until next week. And uh, in his absence, we have a whole bunch of really wonderful, special guest hosts. And before we continue that conversation with Matt Sorens, a couple of quick things. You can find us, if you'd like, on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We've got a lot of discussion happening on the articles that we post. Plus, if you have ideas or suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear from you. You can send us a message. Plus, the show is podcast, and I uh, highly recommend that you check that out. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, reviewing, all that stuff actually helps us out a whole ton. And uh, Matt Sorens is here. Matt Sorens is not only from World Relief, but also the Evangelical Immigration Table. I would highly recommend you check out both of their websites. But in particular, World Relief just launched something called The Path. And I'm really curious to learn a little bit more about what that actually is. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. So The Path is a community of people uh, who are looking to achieve lasting change. Mm. Uh, They think about issues of, of global poverty of violence, oppression, disasters, and, and mass displacement. Um, it's really our community at World Relief of, of Givers who have come alongside World Relief as we come alongside local churches, both in the U.S. and in various parts of the world, to work towards lasting change. Mm-hmm. One thing we find is a lot of people give to World Relief, which we're so grateful for, but it's once, and maybe they do it again a couple of years later, or you know, sort of irregularly, but change takes time and it takes consistency. So we're really looking to build this community with the path of people who will give on a monthly basis, even just a, you know, $25 a month or 50 bucks a month, but it helps us to expand our footprint and to be able to plan better um, to address, you know, the urgent crises that face both our country and, and the world. And that, and that's for anybody, anybody of uh, any persuasion or background, anyone can be a part of that. Absolutely anyone. Uh, it's worldrelief.org slash the path. And part of what we're trying to do is not just, you know, receive uh, gifts to do our work, which we are perfectly grateful for, 
but also to build a community of people who care about these issues of global poverty, of migration and refugees and, um, you know, global health issues. So there, part of that is a consistent you know, amount of communication where we can give people updates on what's happening in various parts of the world, especially, for example, as we're facing this pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, the whole world has changed, not just the United States. And we want people to be aware, not only so that they can um, continue giving, but so they can be praying, so they can be advocating. Um, so the path is sort of our way to do that. And we've you know, been really grateful for a number of people who've jumped on already. Um, one kind of cool thing that makes this especially exciting is we've had some donors come forward and say, we believe so much in the path that every single person who uh, becomes a, a regular uh, giver at worldrelief.org slash the path before August 30th, these donors will match dollar for dollar everything that they give for a year. Wow. So, wow. so if my wife and I can say we could do $42 a month instead of you know, adding up to $500 in the course of a year, that becomes $1,000 for World Relief to help work with local churches to make lasting change for vulnerable people in places like Africa and Haiti and Cambodia, and and then here in Chicagoland and throughout the United States as well. That's remarkable. So we've shared that link over on our Facebook page, but again, that is worldrelief.org slash the path. That's worldrelief.org slash the path. I cannot encourage you enough to head there right now and uh, join them in the work that they're doing there. Matt, you mentioned a little bit at the top of the hour, but I'd, I'd love to give you a couple more minutes to talk about sort of a, a biblical defense for the, the work that you do. I know that even our common good audience is diverse and we have people right and left, both politically and religiously and everything else. And uh, I'd love for you to take a couple of minutes to talk, especially about a biblical worldview and how the Bible informs your positions and convictions around the issues of immigration and refugees. Yeah, well, I never get tired of that question because I think it's so important. Um, and, and honestly, you know, one of the things we found at World Relief and in working with other partners in different denominations and churches is this is an area that I think, you know, the church hasn't really addressed very effectively. At right. Least it's, maybe that's starting to change. But I mean, we did this survey with LifeWay Research a few years ago and found that only 12% of evangelical Christians in the U.S. said that they think about issues of immigration primarily from the perspective of the Bible. No kidding. That was a little bit of a scandal to me because, I mean, evangelical Christians would say we think about everything from the perspective of the Bible. It's our top authority, mm-hmm. but not apparently immigration. And that's that's self-admission, right? I mean, you expect people to lie on a survey like that. Right. And it's <laughs> one of the choices, you know, to say that's definitely it. But only 12%. So, um, you know, some of the big themes, there's a lot more we could go through, and that's just you know, why we wrote the Welcoming the Stranger book. And we've got more resources, even Bible reading guides at com as well. But, you know, God has a lot to say to the people of Israel about how to treat the foreigner in the land. In fact, it's often the foreigner, or depending upon your English translation, the immigrant, the sojourner, the stranger, the alien, mm-hmm. um, mentioned alongside the orphan and the widow as these people who were uniquely vulnerable whom God says really clearly he loves and who he then commands his people to love as well. Mm. Um, One of the most explicit uh, uh, examples of this is in Deuteronomy chapter 10 um, in verses uh, 17 through 19. God says, it says the Lord, your God is the God of all God, Lord of all lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. 
giving him food and clothing. And then in case that wasn't obvious enough, like this is God's character. In verse 19, it says, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Mm. Uh, so there God's doing something he does repeatedly with the Israelites, which is he reminds them of their own story. And I, mm. I think that should, you know, that should cause most Americans pause because we also have immigrant stories. Um, unless you're completely Native American, mm-hmm. your ancestors came from somewhere else. Right. And I think, you know, God actually, at another point in Deuteronomy, he establishes what's basically a, a liturgy for the people of Israel as they bring forward offerings um, and says, uh, I'm sorry, it might, be in Le- it might be in Leviticus, but they come forward and they're supposed to basically recite their immigrant ancestry story mm. so that they don't forget what it was like to be mistreated as foreigners in the land of Egypt. Oh. And so that they will know how to treat the foreigners who come into their land. And I think often Americans have forgotten or, or miss, you know, had kind of a rosy view of our immigrant history, mm. which is a complex story. There's not, you know, there's the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, your teeming masses yearning to breathe free. But there's also the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was right. a pretty ugly law that passed in 1882. There's also seasons in our national history where our country has been very opposed to immigrants and often on fairly explicitly racist uh, rationales that now mm. most of us you know, certainly want to reject. But I think that that history is really important to understand, not so that we can, you know, be just as terrible to the new people as they were to our people 100 or 200 years ago, but mm. so that we can do better than that, so that we are not the Israelites mimicking Pharaoh. Mm. That's so good, man. I, we only have about a minute left in this segment, but I'm wondering what you said at the beginning of that answer about, yeah, we, we tend to see the Bible as our authority in most areas, but seemingly not immigration. Why, why do you think that is? It's a great question. I, I, I think that, you know, I think for a lot of, a lot of, I mean, it's sort of a cyclical issue, right? Most pastors, they don't quite know how to engage this. Immigration is super complicated. So even if they've noticed the Bible says something, it's easier to just talk about something less controversial. And then right. most people in their pews have been discipled on this topic, but not by their churches, but by, you know, cable news or what they've read on Facebook. And then mm. it just makes it harder for church leaders to address it because they know they'll get some pushback, which I would really challenge people. If your pastor speaks on this, before you write an angry email, stop and spend some time in God's word. And, you know, how do we think through this? Because um, it's such an important biblical issue. Yeah. And and not to be too cheeky, but after you read your Bible, I would encourage you to go to worldrelief.org or evangelicalimmigrationtable.com because the amount of resources available just on those two sites alone is remarkable, and I, I guarantee it's worth your time. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Matt Sorens, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief and the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table. And he's sticking around for just one more segment here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. We're on the home stretch of the show today. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. He's out until mid-next week. But when I tell you that I'm thrilled by the number of amazing guests that we have lined up both yesterday, today, and for the rest of the time that Brian is gone, that is that is no overstatement at all. We have some incredible guests lined up, and Matt Sorens is no exception. Before we dive in to this final segment, real briefly, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, or wherever it is you get podcasts. Really, really appreciate all of you who have done that. Plus, 
just to get some website information out there, worldrelief.org or evangelicalimmigrationtable.com. Great, great places to go and continue this conversation. We know that we just have a little bit of time together. And before I dive into my question, Matt, I just want to say how much I appreciate you and the work that you do. You inspire me personally, and I know that I'm not alone in that. So thank you for taking the time just to be with us and to share your experience and your wisdom. It really, really does mean a whole lot. And um, I want to talk a little bit about DACA because I feel like there's not really a week that goes by that I'm I'm not seeing something in the news or something in my news feed about DACA. So why, why don't you give us just sort of a brief overview, maybe about what it is for people who are unfamiliar, and then what kind of the, the current status is for DACA? Yeah, I, you know, I think DACA's in the news a lot lately, and I think a lot of people are probably a little confused on even what we're talking about. So DACA's an acronym. It's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Basically, this is a policy that the Department of Homeland Security put into place back in 2012 um, after literally years of failed attempts to pass something legislatively through the Congress. So this was done at an executive level by the Obama administration. Basically, it said, you know what? We have um, priorities for immigration enforcement. Our top priorities are criminals with you know violent criminals or recent arrivals we want to deter from coming unlawfully or anyone who's a terrorist. But if we're going to have high priorities and we have limited resources, we're going to also going to have low priorities. And our lowest priority will be someone who came to this country, and I should say came, was probably brought to this country before their 16th birthday, who's you know either in school or has completed high school in the U.S. You know, they would have to do something like a commit a criminal act for us to want to deport them. So mm-hmm. that became deferring action on their cases. And under... Uh, you know, under longstanding policies, that meant that they could give them work authorization, which means a valid social security number, the ability to work lawfully, and uh, a conditional you know, uh, protection from deportation. I mean, you could lose that status if you committed a crime or that sort of thing, but right. they were sort of affirming you're not in line for deportation. Hmm. Well, that was the policy for a number of years. It, about 700,000 plus people applied for and benefited from it. Um, and, and I should say, including you know people at my church, people at um, at World Relief, I have colleagues who benefit from this, and we can employ because of this policy. So I'm a little bit biased; it's it's quite personal to me. Mm. But that policy was in place for a number of years, and then it was in 2017 the Attorney General, then uh, Attorney General Sessions, announced that they were rescinding the policy, mm. and there was sort of a, a phased you know termination process. And this was in the news a lot back in 2017, early 2018. And then the court stepped in and said, uh, various courts actually said, we're not sure if the way that the administration tried to end DACA was lawful. Hmm. And so for a couple of years, people, there was no new applications of DACA allowed, but people who already had DACA could keep renewing their work authorization. And that worked its way through the courts. And we got a decision from the Supreme Court uh, last month, about a month ago. I think I was on the show just after that. Basically, the decision was affirming that the executive branch can end DACA, but saying that the way the Trump administration tried to do so was uh, not the correct procedure. So the effect is to keep DACA in place, and meaning renewals can continue to happen. It, it ought to mean, but the way that most lawyers I've consulted with read the law, that new applications should be accepted as well, um, until the administration or a future administration would would try to end DACA by a different rationale and by the proper process. So for the moment, uh, renewals are still possible. We actually haven't seen them reopen 
new application, which a judge last week said they have to do if they're going to comply with the Supreme Court. Mm. We're waiting to see why that's happening. But that's kind of the status quo. But um, it's still a very tenuous situation for those young people. And I think some people heard the headlines of, you know, the DACA one in the Supreme Court. I think that would be an overly simplistic interpretation Mm. because it could still be terminated at any time. Wow. And so what we've been pushing at the evangelical immigration table is to really say, this is something that Congress actually should have solved before DACA went into place in 2012, and Congress still needs to solve. So we've been asking people to, to reach out to the members of Congress and say, hey, this needs a legislative solution, not another executive action. Yeah, right. Now, do you have places that you typically point people to if they have legal questions themselves and they're in need of guidance? Yeah, I appreciate that question. Um World Relief has offices here in the Chicagoland area and a few other places around the country where we have um, legal counselors who are accredited by the Department of Justice um, and, so, and, some, and, and or our attorney. Um, so you can find those uh, World Relief, uh, World Relief DuPage, Aurora.org, and mm-hmm. you should be able to find a link to our Chicago uh, office as well there. Um, there's other organizations, but I would always encourage people who have you know, legal questions for themselves or for loved ones, be really careful to make sure you're getting legal advice from someone who is an attorney and, mm-hmm. or who is recognized by the U.S. Department of Justice to give legal advice on immigration matters. Because unfortunately, there's just a lot of um, fraud out there, a lot of people mm-hmm. preying on immigrants who are really, really desperate, who want desperately to get right with the law. Right. But you know, if they don't qualify under the law, they can... Unfortunately, it's really common for people to spend five, six thousand dollars and be told we're going to fix this situation for you. And then they're just being lied to. So make sure you're talking to someone who's an attorney and and an immigration attorney with immigration experience or uh, someone like at World Relief offices who are recognized by the Department of Justice. That's good, man. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to do something I don't think I've ever done before. I'm going to give you an option. I'm going to give you two questions and you can choose one of them with the uh, remaining two minutes or so we have. One, I'd love to know if you have just like a like a favorite story from from your time at World Relief, the work that you've seen. I imagine you probably interact with a lot of people and have seen a lot more than what people realize. Or you can answer the question: What do you what are you hopeful for, or are you hopeful? Like looking forward in light of everything you talked about this hour, do do you have hope for the future? Oh, those are those are both great questions. I'm, I'm, I'm almost wondering if I can kind of merge them. But yeah, do it. I, I would say, I mean, a lot of what gives me hope is the people I get to interact with in my work at world relief and Mm. in local churches, but that includes a lot of immigrant churches. Um, A lot of the churches in a place like Chicagoland, and this is true in a lot of the United States are very diverse. They're people who have come from all over the world who have either brought a vibrant faith with them, a faith in Jesus with them for wherever they came from or encountered Jesus for the first time here Mm. in the U S and that's uh, you know, I live in Aurora. It's a, diverse city. We're about 40% Hispanic and lots of refugees from East Africa and from uh, Southeast Asia and various other places. I think as I see the church becoming more diverse and it it helps these issues go from being political issues to being people issues. Hmm. And sometimes sends us back to the Bible to say, oh, maybe there's some angles we hadn't thought of before. So that gives me hope. Um, That's not one story, but there's so many stories you know, my, my job at World Relief when I started was as a legal counselor. And I mean, I would interact with a half dozen individuals each day looking for legal counsel. Hmm. Um, 
and a lot of them are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're also just very, you know, resilient people who who works really, really hard and are so, um, you know, I think they make the best Americans in some ways because they understand coming from countries where they don't have the same freedoms that we have here, right. what it is that makes this country great. And often just really grateful for the opportunities of this country. And I see them then feeding back into local churches. And that this really makes me oper- excited about the future for, for the church in the United States. That's outstanding, man. You've been listening to Matthew Sorens. He serves as the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief and as the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table. You can learn more at worldrelief.org or evangelicalimmigrationtable.com. Matt, it has been a joy having you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. It's my pleasure, man. And you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began, because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today.